Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Wealth Tech Show. Today, we have a fantastic guest in the form of Zechariah Schaefer, a young financial advisor who specializes in financial planning for high-flying millennials and Gen Z clients. If you're wondering where the tech part comes in, Zechariah has a keen interest in blockchain, and he assists clients, some of which are wealthy through crypto or STEM, which is science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, um, STEM subjects, basically, with financial planning decisions around cryptocurrency too. And I don't know of anyone in the UK who does that. Zechariah is based, of course, in America on the East Coast. Um, and Zachariah, uh, rather than me talking about you, let's bring you in here. Welcome to the Wealth Tech Show. How are you doing? Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you for having me, Ian. And um, to everyone listening, I am glad to be here. It's exciting. Yeah, so, I mean, our typical listener is UK-based. We, we, we do have an audience in, in America too. Um, give, give us some context on, on who you are because... I, I I reached out to you because I found I found your website interesting and I found you interesting because one you, you aren't the typical age for a financial advisor certainly not a financial advice business owner and secondly you have this interest in in crypto so can you tell us a bit more about yourself you know who you are and 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 how you've come to to get into this industry yeah um, I'll just give you the uh, the two or three minute story if that's all Brilliant. right yeah go but, for it um, yeah so when I was young. Uh, my dad worked on Wall Street. He did really well. He did um, currency trading, you know, Forex. Mm -hmm. And uh, for, for a little less than the first decade of my life, uh, kind of lived that, that affluent life that people think about. Uh, I look back and I think, you know, I had tennis lessons. I, I, I played golf. Like, what did I do? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then, uh, you know, when they got divorced, everything um, in many ways just flipped upside down. Um, and so after the divorce my mom was managing her money for the first time because he'd always done it and he'd always done really well with it. Um, and I saw her really struggle. Um, I saw her make great financial decisions. Um, and I saw her make some ones that weren't as great, but the, the theme that I saw was that she needed help. I couldn't afford it. She would spend hours, um, you know, investing time, mental, emotional energy into trying to make good decisions. And she did. Um, but again, if she'd had help, if she'd had a partner, um, on the financial side, she would have had not only better peace of mind, more peace of mind, but also probably made some better decisions. Um, and so I think, you know, my drive to help people with their money was, was born at a pretty young age. Um, and then I just got really fascinated with, with cryptocurrency and computers and blockchain. And I thought I wanted to, uh, to be a software engineer or go into cybersecurity. Um, and I still really enjoy that stuff, but it wasn't until, you know, fast forward to my senior year of high school, I'm taking a personal finance class, shout out to Mrs. Mills. And uh, yeah, she actually messaged me on LinkedIn the other day, um, but shout That's out to Mrs. Mills. And um, just like that reignited my passion for finance. And uh, yeah, I switched over to studying finance. You know, my intended major was software engineering. I was really going that route and then just switched. Um, and so fast forward, you know, it's late college. I've worked at a couple of firms. I've absolutely loved the work that I've done. But every single firm that I've worked at, I've seen the common denominator of young people who are, you know, I think, you know, you use the term, the, uh, the advice gap, mm -hmm. and they're not even on the side of the advice gap where they need help and can't pay for it. They need help and they can pay for it. But because the traditional model is focused on managing investments or selling Google products, they aren't getting the help they need. Um, and they're calling into the firms that I was working at and they weren't able to get it. And, um, you know, at that point, I'd already been helping people like these people, you know, young people for free, uh, just doing for fun to get experience. 
and I just realized, you know, I've always wanted to start my own firm. I thought I was going to have to wait a decade to do this, but I'm actually, I'm, I'm more experienced, more relatable than some of these advisors who are 20 or 30 or 40 years older than this group of people that I really want to serve. Why don't I just, you know, go for it and start something now? Um, yeah. And then quickly, and that, that's kind of how Ascent was born. Yeah, that's that's a big decision and quite a, a brave one. Do you think you understood at the time what you were taking on? Um, I actually, I do think that I did because um, I, I interviewed countless advisors and other founders. Um, and I think the thing that I realized is that it'd be a huge grind uh, getting clients in the first couple of years, which it has been. I, I'm thankful for the success that I've seen, but it has been hard. Um, and I'm thankful like to reach the point where I can pay myself a, a modest salary. Um, but I think that the uh, thing that, that I realized was that I was ready to serve young people. I wasn't ready, you know, probably to serve, to start a family office. Uh, yeah. That doesn't seem like something that would be within reach. Um, but to start a, a firm serving young people who are crypto-minded, who are crypto investors, who are in STEM and health, the, the you know, STEM, the field that I was going to go into, uh, just just made sense. Yeah. yeah. And and of, of course, we've touched upon crypto a few times without properly explaining your background in it. Uh, my, mm -hmm. my understanding is that you you made some good money off one of the earlier waves of crypto. And that kind of got you hooked. Can you can you tell us about well, that? <laughs> I see shaking your head. So yeah, go on. Yeah. It's better, better for you than me. What, what's the deal? What happened? I had a great learning experience. I made a bit of money. I lost a bit too. So um, what happened is that I, uh, I discovered Bitcoin back in 2014. Um, I was a little bit bored in one of my first period classes and just browsing Reddit. Maybe you're familiar. And I came across, you know, this magic internet money stuff and thought it sounded pretty cool. Got really interested in it. I ended up asking my mom if I could buy some. Um, it was $500. I figured why not just buy one? Um, and she actually, she said no. And then it went to 250. And I was like, all right, mom, you know, thank you. You were right. Um, and then it went up to... Uh, where it is now but you know thankfully fast forward I, I turned 18 and uh, when I turned 18 I got my first job I was a, a lifeguard at the YMCA locally uh, making like I think it was 775 an hour um, and I was just investing you know all of my paychecks and any other funds that I had into uh, mostly Ethereum and I was back in 2017 so that year Ethereum went from under $10 to almost $1,400 and um, I got to, you know, firsthand experience what I help my crypto clients manage nowadays. And what I experienced was that, you know, the euphoria, but also the anxiety that comes with being extremely overinvested because my hundreds and then my thousands had turned into tens of thousands. And then it turned into a bit under $200,000. Um, and I am a senior in high school and then a freshman in college at that point. And I am you know, severely mismanaging these funds. Um, <laughs> just, you know, going out and buying stuff that I probably shouldn't buy, you know, doesn't, not really worth it. I didn't save for my tax bill and I wasn't managing the risk of it at all. Um, which then leads to the second part of the story, the unfortunate part, but also the extremely valuable lesson that I now get to help my clients with and, and share with them, um, which is that most of it, uh, I actually don't have much to show for it. And you know, I've invested since then and had some gains, but um, that, that initial tranche of crypto it did end up paying for most of my college, which I'm very thankful for that blessing. But uh, but aside from that, I basically had to sell on the way down to pay for my college because I didn't manage the risk properly. Um, yeah. So yeah, it was actually a really, really good learning experience. And during that time, when it was going up, 
thankfully I did, um, you know, have the, uh, the critical thinking to say, okay, this, uh, this little bit of money that I've invested is now grown into a, a lot more. Maybe I shouldn't know what I'm invested in. And that's when I really did a lot of research on blockchain technology and distributed ledger technology and, uh, you know, the, the true real world use cases. Because at first it was just this, this thing that I came across on the internet, but now um, distributed ledger technology and blockchain technology is what I think that the, the future of the world's infrastructure will be built upon. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and I really want to get into that later, but, but quickly, just to tap into something you said just there, you're, you know, you're at a point where you're what late teens and you've made a, a lot of money you know, from, from Ethereum, what's the psychology of that? How did you feel at the time? Did that, did that give you a kind of false sense of confidence, would you say? That is exactly what it gave me. And that's exactly what fueled me um, making bad decisions because I got lucky, basically, um, made a fair amount of money off of it, um, a lot of money for a high school senior, college freshman. And then because I made that money, I thought, oh, that means that I'm good at investing. And so then I started day trading. And I, like I said, I didn't manage my tax bill properly, did not approach that proactively. Um, and then what happened was that I reached a point where I was overinvested. I was trying to trade back my losses. Um, and I was anxious because I knew that I now needed this money and I hadn't been losing it uh, because shocker, I wasn't good at trading. <laughs> It's really funny because I've, I've noticed a trend, and this is this is just by the by. When I speak to friends who are invested in in crypto, a lot a lot of them now are referring to themselves as traders. But I, I just find that just really interesting because when you ask them for the the ideas behind why they're investing in certain coins or the philosophies they've got for investing, none none of them would really stand up to any serious, you know, academic mm-hmm. scrutiny. So I, I wonder if we're if, you know, it's an easy trap to fall into, right? Thinking you're a trader. It is. Yeah. And I, I'm really thankful that I had that experience, actually. As much as having those funds and keeping that money would have been very useful in helping me to jumpstart my firm. Um, <laughs> I am very thankful that I had that experience because now I'm able to take the, uh, the psychological experience, the euphoric rise, the feelings of um, ecstasy, along with the feelings of anxiety and fear and depression as it's going down. I'm able to take that and marry that kind of psychological side that I, I've experienced with the sound financial principles that I've learned in school and at the firms that I worked at, and then bring that to my clients. Um, so even though it was a bit of a painful experience, it's been very useful and helpful to the clients that I serve. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and, and here's the thing, I'm, I'm asking questions about false confidence and mistakes being made when you were a teenager. Well, the, the real story here is that you're doing something really cool. Right. I, that's why I reached out to you. That's why I wanted to speak to you. And, and to look at your company, I mean, you're focusing on Gen Z and millennials. Um, and, and that's a cohort that gets overlooked by advisors quite, quite often. And, and just, some, just some background on this. I think Gen Z has recently become the, the largest cohort that, that's alive on the planet. And, and according to, to Bloomberg, that's where I found this information, Gen Z is just over a quarter of the global population. In the US, it account, counts for about $150 billion dollars in spending power, um, it's not actually a small market, is it? No. Um, but, but my question for you would be, wh- where are you finding these clients? Are they coming to you based on things you're, you're putting online or, or do you have to go out and find them? Yeah, so um, great question. Um, the reason that I started serving Gen Z millennials was really just because they're people that I love 
And just like when I was young, my mom was someone that I loved, needed help, couldn't afford it. Now my peers, friends, people that I love, need help, couldn't afford it. Um, so in a way, I, I almost stumbled into that. But I did do a lot of research after I you know, thought like, okay, I want to serve this group of people, then a ton of research on it is it's feasible. Um, and so the areas that I'm finding my clients, I'll actually, I'll pull up my, uh, my practice snapshot spreadsheet for you. So the, the client acquisition sources, I, uh, I serve a very unique group of people. Obviously, most advisors don't do that. And then my model being advice only is extremely unique. I don't sell products. I don't manage investments. I do do the taxes or outsource that. Um, but so the, uh, the biggest group of, uh, or the biggest source of revenue actually for me is advisor referrals. And the reason for that is because my firm is so different. My business model is so different that many of the clients that advisors send to me are my best clients. But for those advisors, they'd be some of their worst clients because they'd be a ton of work and they'd be very, very small um, because they don't need financial products and they have almost no investments to manage. That's for me, really fascinating. Yeah, it, it is interesting. Yeah, it, it it makes sense. Which my whole goal of what I'm doing is just for it to make sense for the uh, the clients. But um, but yeah, 38 percent of my clients come from, or 38 percent of my revenue has come from uh, advisor referrals, and then 26 uh, percent from LinkedIn marketing, and then below that, um, I got a few clients from networking. A few friends became clients, and uh, there's one or two clients who. They just found me. I don't know how they found me. They don't know how they found me, but we just work together and it works great. Amazing. I mean, it's funny because there, there are parallels between the US and the UK markets to a point here. And, and we often poll people on whether or not they invest in cryptocurrency themselves or if clients ask them about it. And, and what we found is it's really commonplace for clients to ask their advisor about crypto. Now, what's <laughs> lacking over here is we don't have anyone working with your sort of model where somebody could say, okay, I don't want this client, but I know someone who does. And, and I, I just find what you're doing fascinating there because I wonder if that might one, be, one day be the way that we go. Although we will, obviously, as this podcast uh, goes on, explain how you're working with crypto clients because I think some people will be listening to that and being terrified that you're going to be sticking client money in Dogecoin or, or something <laughs> like that. And, and that's, that's totally not what you're doing. So we will come yeah. on to that. We'll, um, but also another question is, uh, you know, what's it like working with, with younger clients? I, I guess you don't necessarily have that experience so much of working with older ones, but, but some, some more information here, right? So 67% uh, of millennials and 90% of Gen Z are willing to turn to big tech and, and non-banks for better banking technology and faster banking services. Uh, that's research from Phoenix Synergistics. Um, BAI found that 61% of Gen Z uh, begin banking with a bank their parents use. Um, and, and that's quite an interesting one. So there's a chance to retain these clients. Um, but at the same time, 66% are comfortable receiving financial advice via AI. Um, although 84% of millennials are comfortable with AI, it seems Gen Z are less comfortable with AI than millennials, which is, which is fascinating. And then looking at trust issues, I mean, obviously, it's easy to forget just how recent the, the financial crash was and the, and the impact that's had on people. In 2018, there was a survey by the World Economic Forum which suggested that 45% of, of respondents under 30 said they don't trust banks. So I, I've thrown out a few things there. They're not all entirely connected, but what we're looking at is, is a generation that deals with money in a different way, um, has a different relationship with institutions, and has a different level of willingness to engage with technology and, and automation, essentially. Do, yeah. do, you, do you see that in your service? And do you think that 
an understanding of modern technology and also the kind of socio-political scenario is actually really valuable for relating to people who are kind of closer to your age? Um, I, I do see that. I think that the most interesting thing uh, is that the financial advisor that their parents had is going to be so different than me or the financial advisor that they're hiring. Um, because the financial advisor that, that most uh, of their parents have had is, has been mostly investment manager and then a little bit financial planner um, slash quarterback to use an overused analogy. Um, whereas for me, all I do is the quarterback. Um, and they know that. And I think that that kind of helps me fit in because you're right. They're not super trusting of institutions. They are very open to tech solutions, fintech solutions. Um, but sometimes they don't know which ones to use. And I like to say that, you know, you can find everything on Google to create your financial plan, but Google can't create your financial plan because you're going to be lost in a sea of information, some of which applies to you, some of which doesn't. And if you have the time, the talent and desire to invest in figuring out what does apply to you, by all means, go for it. But you're going to have to have a lot of time. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I totally see that. And I, I think that's kind of where my service comes in. I basically, for the most part, uh, guide them uh, towards what to use, help them use it, and then I'm there for support. So, you know, I might be telling my clients to open up a robo-advisor account because I don't manage investments and I'm helping them open up the account and actually walking through, you know, I'm not doing it for them, they're doing it. We're sitting down together or we're on a Zoom call and they're sharing their screen. But uh, the, the value proposition has gone from me making the portfolio to me helping them where to, you know, where to find the solution that's going to make it. Yeah, I find that fascinating too. You're kind of more of a, a navigator, uh, you know, rather than you know, doing absolutely everything for people. Uh, and right. another, another thing here is, is again, to, to speak to making money at a young age and the impact that can have on you. Because I, I, I'll be honest, I think if I was very successful at a young age, I think I would be really insufferable, to be completely honest. Um, <laughs> you know, you know, thankfully or not, so that, that's not the way it's panned out. But um, here's the deal. Like, we're, I, I want to know what it's like advising these clients who, are, who are either made money through crypto or, or STEM clients who, are, who obviously are bright and no doubt confident and you're advising some very highly intelligent young people on what to do with their money how do you find that honestly it's intimidating sometimes um <laughs> I can imagine it is um but I, I do recognize that even though they might be the smartest person in the room they probably are uh i am the person with the the sound financial strategies and they're just delegating that to me so i feel very confident in the value that i bring them um, and I actually quantify the value of the financial planning opportunities that I bring to them when I can um, so that I can, you know, one, justify my value to them, but two, to myself, um, because I'm never going to charge a client a fee that I wouldn't feel good paying if I was in their shoes. But when I show them, you know, the value of this opportunity, these steps that I'm recommending you take is $700,000 over the next 30 years, that puts things in perspective. Um, but no, yeah, it, it can be a little bit intimidating. Um, I use the phrase, you know, you probably already know this, but pretty frequently. <laughs> um, and then aside from that, uh, I think that I, I love every single client that I work with genuinely. It's, it's a blast. I'm really blessed to serve them. And um, I think that the, the, the groups of people that I serve 
they're not resistant to advice at all. Um, and the reason for that is that there's kind of three groups of clients that I'm really seeing uh, show up in my, my client base. And that is the early 20 somethings who are very smart, but know that they're not financially minded and they just need help with it. And so they recognize they need help. They're very willing to follow advice. Um, they're willing to pay for it. They generally want it. And then there was the second group, which is the people in their early 30s who maybe could have made some better financial decisions in their 20s. They weren't as intentional as they realized they could have been. They're not doing badly at all, but they realize that they want to take their intentionality to the next level because they're, they're realizing now, okay, the, the decisions that I make in my 20s and 30s, they will compound for the rest of my life, whether I like it or not. Um, and so for them, same thing, they're also very willing to, uh, to pay for advice, very willing to follow it, and they genuinely desire it. And then the third group, um, unfortunately, is crypto investors who made a, a significant amount of money in crypto. And then this is the unfortunate part, uh, did not approach their taxes proactively and generated a significant tax bill and now realize they need help. Yeah. So really the people that I work with actually, well, it, it can be a little intimidating. Um, all of them genuinely want the advice. And that, that's really like the only type of client that I'll, I'll accept, you know? Yeah. And actually this, this interestingly uh, matches up to, well, the willingness to accept advice matches up with some research I've seen from the UK from, from Oxford Risk. Uh, and they found that in, during, the, during the lockdown, through December 2020, uh, in the UK, 38% of stock market investors aged 18 to 34 did not seek any financial advice. So that's 62% did seek advice if they had stocks. Now, mm -hmm. the interesting thing is that that figure for the whole market, when it's not just 18 to 34, and it is indeed 18 upwards, that becomes 60% of people who didn't seek advice. Um, so it, wow. it's amazing. It's from 38% not seeking it to 60% not seeking it. It seems like the younger generation actually may well be more receptive to talking about these things and may well be more receptive to actually receiving yeah. advice, which is, it seems possibly... I don't know, counterintuitive, maybe. I, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't really have anecdotes or stories to back that up. The only thing that I, I will say is that I think that my generation, you know, Gen Z and millennials, some of them grew up around TikTok and Instagram and like all the gurus on there. And hopefully they didn't follow the gurus on there because statistically nine out of 10 times the advice that they give is wrong. But they did grow up seeing that and realizing, oh, you know, maybe there are things out there that I don't know. Maybe there is public knowledge that's not common that it would be helpful for me to pay someone to apply to my situation. Um, yeah. So yeah, Absolutely. I think they're very receptible, receptive to advice. Yeah, interesting. And, and let's go on to the crypto thing because I teased that earlier. I think we need to understand how crypto fits into your proposition. So how, mm -hmm. how are you working crypto into your financial planning in a way that isn't causing regulatory problems? Right. Great question. Question I like it a lot. Um, so I think that a lot of people hear what I do and they think that I help people invest in crypto. And with my niche, Gen Z, Millennial, STEM or health professionals or crypto investors, ideally both, um, with those crypto investors, they're very confident in their, their crypto investing ability. Often they've made a significant amount of money in crypto. They don't need help with the crypto itself. They need help with the tax strategies to mitigate their tax bill, proactively approaching their tax bill, the risk management, and then the general financial planning surrounding it. Because they know 
that this, uh, this, this shed, if you will, on their financial property has grown into a skyscraper with no foundation. And they need foundation, so that's why I'm there, because they know that I have the experience, I enjoy crypto, I share the passion, but I also have the sound financial principles that I can help them apply and actually take their significant crypto gains and turn them hopefully into you know, something that can be tangibly used for their life goals, whether that's retiring early or whether that's just shooting for the moon and you know, having their crypto grow as much as possible or oftentimes somewhere in the middle. Um, but so I'm not actually recommending when to buy or sell crypto or what cryptos to buy or sell. Mm -hmm. um, very occasionally, if there's a project in someone's portfolio and their crypto side of their portfolio that is pretty shady, then I will say something towards the air of, you know, I think you should probably should reconsider that investment. Yeah. Here are some reasons why. But I don't actually tell them, hey, you should buy Bitcoin or hey, you should buy Ether. And the reason for that is that in my projections, I assume that crypto will go to zero, not because I think it's going to go to zero, I don't, but because it's so unpredictable, it's so speculative. Um, so that's, so that's factored in then when you're helping people understand yeah. the risk and the viability of their financial plan. Right, exactly. That's, so you, you, so you go with the worst case scenario. Right, and that way we can you know, hopefully have a much better than worst case scenario, but their financial plan isn't going to blow up if their crypto doesn't go to $10 million because yeah. it's probably not going to, <laughs> yeah. uh, but it might. Yeah. yeah. Have you had any situations where a client is investing in something kind of decentralized finance that just ticks all the wrong boxes for you? Because as much as we've seen a lot of people make serious money from crypto, there have been countless scams. There have been so many things that have gone wrong and not everyone acting in, in the DeFi world is acting in good faith. Have you come across any instance where clients, as I say, have been doing things that you've, you've literally thought you've got to stop doing this? Actually, no. Um, you know, there's been one or two products that I've seen in a client's portfolio where I've asked them, you know, why is that there? Tell me more about that. Um, and then depending on the answer, I'm like, you know, I, I think that we probably really should consider, you know, having you invest in something else aside from this project. Um, but the thing about crypto and the thing about, well, the thing about cryptocurrencies is, um, I think cryptocurrencies are really a lot like dot-com stocks in the nineties. Whereas blockchain technology, distributed ledger technology is a lot like the internet itself, the technology in the 90s, in the sense that the jury's still out on all these cryptocurrency and digital asset projects, and many of them probably will fail. But the technology, hopefully, I, I think so, will mature and become what it is today or something similar yeah. to what the internet is today. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's funny because the technology obviously has got to mature. So too has the regulation. And it's, it's interesting that the people... Certainly in the UK, who would who would you know there are no doubt great and bright minds devoted to trying to figure out what to do here, but it, it mm -hmm. it's a very big task, isn't it, to get someone to create a, a proper regulatory framework around around crypto and uh, just some other things. Well, to, to put another side to it, um, the ETF a mutual fund manager Van Eck uh, towards the end of 2020 pointed out that at the time 29% of stocks in the S and P 500 actually had higher year-to-date volatility than Bitcoin, um, which, was, which was quite interesting. And, and also DBS, yeah. DBS which, is, which is based in Singapore, have suggested that there's now a weak correlation between Bitcoin and equity performance, which again is, is quite interesting and hadn't previously been observed, um, kind of suggesting that Bitcoin isn't quite the fringe asset that it used to be. And at the same time, I mean, I, you, know, you, you can take a look at it now. If you look at the, the last month or the last year for Bitcoin, 
And, and that obviously seems like the right one to start with because it's the biggest one. Um, in the last month, Bitcoin's been as high as about $33,300 and as low as $27,500. In the past six months, the, the low was about just, just under $26,000 and the high was almost like very almost $50,000. So we're obviously dealing with something that's very volatile. How do you think the regulator can can actually create a structure within which advisors might one day be able to you know, offer investment advice on this? Um, personally, in the US, I think that investment advisors can offer advice on it now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know, I, I just talked about how I help the clients who already have crypto, but for the group of clients who don't have crypto yet, they're just in that STEM and health field. Some of them are very interested in it and I do help them get invested in it in a conservative, uh, secure manner. So a lot of the value that I'm bringing there is obviously like, you know, the tax and risk management before, but then also just helping them to have the right security protocols, helping them to create an account in the right way possible. So that it's hopefully not going to get hacked. Um, and then figuring out, okay, you know, you are already saving enough. So if you want to divert some of your savings towards crypto, you're not going to do that because you're saving just enough. So if you want to divert some of your savings towards crypto, you need to increase your savings because you know the amount that you your your, your minimum necessary savings has to go towards traditional investments that we can more reasonably predict and base things off of. But then with stuff that you can afford to lose, that's fine to put in crypto. Um, so all that to say, I think that investment advisors in the U.S. and I have seen some portfolio managers doing this, where they're recommending that having a small sleeve of a client's portfolio in high-risk asset, high-risk speculative asset like crypto is actually good portfolio management. So I don't think that anything needs to change per se to have investment advisors be able to recommend that. Um, and there are all, in the US, there are also already uh, custodial platforms for advisors whose clients are interested in crypto and unlike my clients aren't as comfortable with it as they are. Um, now I think the tax side, there's some problems there. Uh, you know, the tax treatment of crypto is basically the same across the board. But the thing is, certain crypto projects are so different from others that we need to have different classes. Um, you know, a pure currency probably shouldn't be taxed the same as a utility token, uh, which probably shouldn't be taxed the same as an NFT. Maybe it should. I know I'm no regulator, but uh yeah, I just think that we need to have some, about how to regulate differentiation. Yeah. I just, yeah, I think I don't really know that much about the regulations in the sense of like how to make them better. But I do think that the, the thing that needs to happen is that there needs to be recognition and differentiation of different types of cryptos by the government. Yeah, sure. And and also, you know, you, you mentioned earlier, and, and I've read on your website as well that you're, yeah, you know, you're an enthusiast when it comes to blockchain and what that can do. And again, an, another big question for you, Zachariah, but w- what do you think blockchain can do to change the way that financial planners and wealth managers as well, I guess, um, operate? Where, where do you think the innovation that matters is there? So that's such a big question, but um, <laughs> I think just a I little bit. It, yeah. Uh, no, no, you're so, you're so good. It's a great question. Um, one of the really high potential aspects of blockchain and distributed ledger tech is that it has the potential, if widely adopted, to bring the power back to the people. So right now our trust is so divided. You know, it's it's uh we give some of it to our credit card company, some of it to our 
financial planner, some of it to Charles Schwab, who the financial planner tells Charles Schwab what to do with the investments, and then some of it to our bank itself. And this is just finance sector stuff. We give it away, our trust away to other sectors in many other ways. Um, but I think that something that will be really interesting that I hope will come about is identity management on the blockchain. Um, and with identity management, you know, me having my, uh, basically like my, maybe even universal password, if you will, that's my private key. And then all of my assets truly being owned by me on my own bank. But then the identity management and permission management comes in. And so I can give my financial planner permission to view my assets or to view my portfolio. And then um, I can give my financial permission to change things, but not to actually take anything out. Um, so I think that that could be a really interesting, very, very far in the future thing, where if, if all of our assets are in some way on the blockchain and they're all tied, the power is all back with the individual, then the individual has the power to uh, give that away in a way where they still have the, the ultimate power. Because right now my bank account, uh, you know, if my bank gets mad at me, they could freeze my account. They could say, we notice suspicious crypto transactions in your account or crypto, you know, withdrawals to crypto exchanges and we're freezing your account. And yes, I'd be able to get it back eventually, but they have all the power over it. Um, same thing with my credit cards and other things. Um, so that's, that's one area. And then I think a really interesting area that I just don't know enough about would be uh, insurance and estate planning on the blockchain. So smart contracts or ecosystems where uh, the, and this is, it really gets into where I just don't have enough expertise in this area, but um, if you could have decentralized insurance, it sounds possible to me. It sounds like the coolest thing, but I just don't know how to be implemented. Um, but it does sound possible. Yeah. Absolutely. And I guess there are intermediaries who get cut out. And I, I, I find that interesting because I think there's this notional middleman who does nothing and takes loads of money. I wonder if the reality is that that's not entirely right. I, I don't know. Like you, I'm kind of watching it and seeing how it, how it plays out. But I guess there are people that will want to cut layers out of the financial services um, you know, ecosystem, much like you mentioned with banking. And that, I guess that could hit investing too. Right. And I mean, there's pros and cons. Like if, uh, if I make a mistake and I, in my own bank and I send my money to someone else and I sent the wrong person by mistake, I can't call my bank and be like, Hey, I made a mistake, reverse the transaction because it's decentralized. I can't call anyone and do that. Yeah. So that's, that's permanent. So there's, there's a lot of barriers to adoption where the everyday consumer will not be able to use blockchain probably for a while. Um, but it's still possible. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a whole different podcast right there. I mean, yeah, it really is. Yeah. It really, I mean, so Zachary, I've got time for one more question. It's a question in two parts. And it's a, a relatively fun one. What I want to know is, is what's the best crypto decision you've made? And then also, what's the worst? Um, I mean, I think they both center around that same story. The story yeah. of how I got into crypto. So, I mean, the best crypto decision that I made monetarily, although you could argue that it was a bad decision because I didn't know what I was doing and why I was doing it. But on paper, the best decision I made was buying a whole bunch of Ether at $12 and $15 and $40 and $100 and $300 and then selling it later. Um, 
So you could argue that was the best decision I made because I made significant gains, especially on that first buy at $12, you know, at, at a time, the gains on that was like over a thousand percent. I didn't sell it at over a thousand percent, but at a time on paper it was that. Um, but then that couples right with the worst crypto decision that I made, which was I, I let the emotions get the best of me and I let my pride get in the way. And so those, those significant gains that I just mentioned on paper then led me to be prideful and to make trading decisions uh, based on really no substance at all. Um, and then because of my hubris and ego to lose money because of trading and then think that I could gain it back. Um, and then thankfully, as we you know said before, the, the result was that my college still was paid for by crypto primarily, but uh, there wasn't much more to show for it. So yeah. Yeah. Great lessons. Great lessons. It's a great answer as well. It's a it's an incredible story. And I, I just wonder, it's the kind of thing that five or ten years ago would have seemed a bit like bonkers, right? But I think increasingly there are going to be people with very similar stories to yeah, you know, I'm sure there are already loads of people with similar stories to yours. Um yeah, a couple of my clients are that way. Yep. Yeah, and, and it's great to hear it. And Zechariah, thank you so much for sharing that with us. Uh, that is all we've got time for, I'm afraid. Um, but of course, like great to have you on. And thank you to everyone who's listened to this week's episode of the Wealth Tech Show. Goodbye for now, and we'll see you again soon.